Back to Luke, we turn this morning to the 11th chapter. We'll pick up where we left off last time at verse 14 of Luke chapter 11. For the past couple of weeks, we've been considering Jesus' teaching on prayer, particularly about prayer to Father. We learn both the content of prayer as well as the confidence with which we may lift that content to the Lord, our Father in heaven. This week, Dr. Luke seems to take a jarring turn in his gospel with this account of an exorcism and healing. Many scholars have noticed this too, which has caused many of them to ask whether this material uh, about which or this material we're going to read uh, really belongs uh, in Luke's gospel, but might later have been uh, sort of sloppily uh, pasted into uh, Luke here. But uh, it isn't really difficult at all, actually, to see how this uh, really finds a natural place in Luke's narrative. Uh, Jesus has just finished teaching us how to pray. Among those prayers, he's taught us to pray that God's kingdom will come, that it will advance. And what kingdom, I ask you, ever advances except at the expense and retreat and defeat of another kingdom? Well, the answer, of course, is none. And so it's not surprising or unnatural that we go from our knees to the fight. Indeed, we rather expect to see the answer to our prayers, that the kingdom will advance and there will be much clashing and conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. We're reminded, too, of Cooper's famous lines, the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Let's pray. Father, we ask for just that, that your kingdom will advance even in the hearing of your voice now, that Satan will tremble, for we are asking you to do what must cost him dearly. And we thank you that you will answer, for you have promised, and we are simply asking you to do what you already said you would. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then whom do your sons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You might remember that famous use to which Jesus' proverb was put, that proverb about a divided house in our own American history. It was on June 16, 1858, that more than a thousand Republican delegates met at the State House in Springfield, Illinois, for the purpose of selecting a candidate for the U.S. Senate. Abraham Lincoln would be their choice for running against Democrat Stephen Douglas. In his often quoted address delivered on that occasion, out of which his concern for the divided nation uh, was um, rose, Mr. Lincoln borrowed this phrase from Jesus, a house divided against itself cannot stand. What lent his words uh, authority that evening is the fact that our nation in those days was more biblically literate than it is today. They reverberated in the ears and hearts, these words did, of his hearers, because even though taken out of context, these were the words of Jesus. Obviously, they served Lincoln well, uh, at least in the long run from an historical perspective. In context, that proverb is even more powerful Because Jesus was describing a situation far more dangerous, far more encompassing, far more important from an eternal perspective. Jesus was dealing with a crueler slavery and a much more powerful deliverance. He was speaking of the kingdom of God and the house of Satan. In context, it was for Jesus far more than a piece of effective rhetoric. It was a profoundly logical response to the critics of his day. You'll remember from the past year of sermons in Luke and from your own reading of the Gospels that Jesus' ministry was marked all along the way from beginning to end by spiritual conflict and warfare. First thing after his baptism, we find him Remember in the wilderness, locking horns verbally with the devil who was tempting him and threw his worst at Jesus. 
In the months that followed, Jesus often defeated Satan by casting out demons one at a time, sometimes whole legions of demons at a single stroke. Sometimes those demons threw down their victims in seizures, and sometimes they put words in their mouths and on their tongues. Sometimes, as in this case, the occupying demon silenced the tongue of the mute man. Mute because of the demon. One of the shortest miracle stories in the Bible recorded in verse 14, Jesus prevailed again. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. By the way, I think we can see here also something of a link to what's just come before. Jesus has just taught his disciples to pray, saying, remember? And now this man, bound by the demon, was unable to say Anything until Jesus loosed his tongue by casting out the demon that had held it still. That's not to say, of course, that we can't pray without making verbal noises and utterances. Of course we can. I only point it out to you as a possible literary device used by Dr. Luke. Uh, You can ask him about that when you see him. But notice that the people marveled. And that's, on the face of it, uh, a right response to marvel at such a work. Alas, underneath, it was not a right right response. Their, Their astonishment hid behind it a lack of faith. While there could be no doubt that Jesus had just performed a miracle, and that is always the case when a genuine miracle has been performed, even unbelievers acknowledge that something supernatural has just taken place. They say the people were inclined to doubt Jesus. In fact, we can divide them into two groups, the opponents and the skeptics. Though for eternal purposes, of course, they're really just two parts of the same group. The opponents immediately said that Jesus must be doing this by the power of the devil, by Beelzebul. Others, the skeptics, we may call them, demanded more signs before they were ready to say for sure. As I say, both groups were basically uh, unbelievers. And, And their presence there doesn't surprise us. From the parallel accounts of this history in Matthew and Mark, we found out that we find out that these are Pharisees, these are scribes, uh, people who hate Jesus, people who despise Jesus with every ounce of their being. They were more than ready either to ascribe Jesus' work to the devil or to demand more signs, as though what they had just seen and had seen over and over and over again uh, from Jesus' hand was not enough. They say they want a sign from heaven. (laughs) Hello? (laughs) Open your eyes. Here it is. Here he is. Jesus knows how to answer. He points out both their illogic uh, and their inconsistency. 
I want to start with the second, their inconsistency. These Pharisees want to say that Jesus is casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. But he's apparently from this account, he's not the only one who's been casting out demons, um, or at least claiming to drive out demons. Some of their own number had claimed to do the same. Now, to whom did these doubters, these skeptics, these opponents of Jesus ascribe the power of these others to drive out demons? Well, certainly not to Beelzebul. They gave credit to God, or at least said that they did these things by the power of God. Certainly they did not ascribe that power to Satan. No doubt that they, 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 they you know, would ascribe that power not to Satan, but to somebody else, to, to, to God perhaps. But why should Jesus be any different? Verse 19, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, Jesus says you're, just, you're being inconsistent. You're being inconsistent. But their illogic is really what Jesus goes after here. Why would Satan undo his own work? That's the effective argument. Verse 17. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Now you see what he's saying, right? If you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul, but what sense does that make? You know, that's, that's illogical. If Satan is working against himself, then he's destroying his own kingdom. And even Satan isn't that foolish. A house divided against itself cannot stand. It's that kind of airtight logic, which, by the way, children, is why you're studying logic, so that you can be like Jesus, okay? It's that airtight logic that Jesus argues all, all, all the way through, not only with regard to Satan's house, but with regard to his own house, the kingdom of God, with regard to our houses, your hearts, and mine. So that's what we'll consider this morning with the time that is left. Uh, between those three, there are no divided houses. There are no divided houses. First, Satan's house is not divided. Since the day that Satan and his minions rebelled against God in heaven and were cast out of the presence of God, his diabolical ranks have, as far as we know, remained united. You know that before the fall of man, there was another fall, the fall among the world of spirits, the beings of great power. And that first fall produced a vast company of re of rebel spiritual beings, evil in their hearts, restless in their determination to oppose the will of God and the kingdom of God at every turn. As the angelic host was organized, at least in some form of hierarchy, so these evil uh, beings have commanders, leaders, a prince. Just as there are such beings as archangels, of course you can think of people like uh, angels like Michael and, and Gabriel, so there are 
also archdemons, and the first among them is Satan, often referred in the Bible, uh, referred to as the devil, or as our text does this morning, as Beelzebul or Beelzebub. An interesting study in those names that we will not uh, take up at this time. Well, under his command, the powers of darkness are at work today, still are, even here. Don't doubt it. Just because we do not see it as dramatically as they did in Jesus' day, and as it continues even still today, uh, more visibly in other parts of the world, don't let down your guard. The devil, uh, Satan, is at work. And scripture says he disguises himself oftentimes as an angel of light. And while there are many who remain firmly in his grasp, unbelievers all around you who seem very nice and very friendly, these unbelievers do, yet they are still in his grasp. And you must be on your guard. I want to speak particularly to you young people who are very quickly before our eyes becoming adults and will in the near future be marrying young ladies. He may seem to you like the best thing since sliced bread. You know, he's uh, handsome. He's uh, considerate, maybe. Um, He's good to you in a lot of ways. But if he does not love God above all, then he is not the gift of God to you. Not at all. He is still a son of his father, the devil. And the devil never, ever opposes himself, except, of course, if you think in the grand scheme of things in which Satan is, as a matter of fact, his own worst enemy. Young men, she seems like a very nice girl, charming, beautiful, attractive. But if she's not a believer in Jesus Christ, then she is still in in an entirely opposite spiritual universe. She is your enemy, for she is a daughter of her father, the devil. Satan's house is a diabolical house, but it is also a united house. But the great news is this. Second, Jesus' house, the kingdom of God, is also a united house too. And what is more, it is far more powerful than Satan's. Verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. That's Satan. But when one stronger, that's Christ, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Where Christ goes, 
Satan flees. Where the kingdom of God grows, it is always at the expense of Satan's kingdom. And King Jesus is not accustomed to giving up ground once he has taken it. In fact, he never has. He's never surrendered an inch. Every inch he takes, he keeps. And every person who is in that kingdom is fully in. And every person who is out of that kingdom is fully out. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutrality in Jesus' house. None. No half in and half out. And I know some of you are thinking about what Jesus said before to his disciples back in chapter 9. Remember he said the one who is not against you is for you. And so now you're thinking, you know, which one is which? Which one is true? But remember the situation in which Jesus said that. There was another disciple casting out demons in Jesus' Name The twelve were concerned because that disciple wasn't part of their, you know, little circle. Remember how that history went? Uh, Jesus says to them, that doesn't mean that he's not one of us, just because he's not one of you. If he's not against you, he's for you. And he was acting in Jesus' name. Here Jesus is saying something entirely different, addressing a different situation. He's saying that there is no halfway when it comes to being his disciple. You are either 100% sold out to Jesus, or you belong to Satan. You are either totally for Christ, or you are totally against him. There's no half measures. There's no part-time Christians. There's no fence-sitting with Jesus. Which brings me then to you. Satan's house is not divided. Christ's house, his kingdom, is not divided. And your house, that is your heart, is not divided either. The simple fact is you are either with Jesus or you are against him. If you are with him, he has taken possession of you. He is your king, and the king has staked the ground of your heart for himself. Every inch of it belongs to him. And remember, once King Jesus has taken ground, he does not ever give it back. He has stripped Satan of his armor and of his power in that Situation. I say that for two reasons. The first is to comfort you, and the other is to challenge and to bring you to some conviction. First, I say it for your comfort, <clears throat> and that for a reason. You've, you may have heard this. I know for a fact that this passage has been misused to teach Christians that it is entirely possible for them even after they have come under the kingship of Christ, it's still possible for Satan or one of his demons to take possession of them again. And you might guess how people come to that uh, view. 
Beginning in verse 24, Jesus gives us a glimpse into the spirit world. He says, when an unclean spirit, the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This, they say, is proof positive that demons can be removed from a person, that person become a Christian, and yet those demons possess that person again and even bring more demons to join them. But they fail, those who teach that, fail to reckon with the details of Jesus' teaching. First of all, the demon left that person. He wasn't necessarily driven out. It says nothing about having been driven out of that person. For whatever reason, the demon has left him for a time. Second, nobody moved in. Right? After the demon left, well, things were put in order, Jesus says. The person made some moral improvements, maybe. You know, they stopped swearing for a while, or they stopped sleeping around, uh, maybe they even started going to church, uh, they made some reforms, they tried to be a better person. But all the while, the heart remained vacant. No new tenant has moved in to take possession. So when the demon returns, he brings seven others worse than himself to join him, and the eight of them dwell there together. Now, that does not describe, cannot describe a Christian. A Christian is someone whose heart Christ has conquered. Christ has taken dominion. His flag flies over that ground. His banner floats over that heart. Even if a former tenant, an evil spirit, returns, it finds the, the door barred and locked for the simple reason that Jesus possesses it. Christian, no demon can possess you ever for the simple reason that Christ possesses you and he never surrenders an inch of what he has taken Now, that doesn't mean that you won't have spiritual wars to fight and battles. Indeed, that's probably exactly what this means. Evil spirits don't generally enjoy uh, coming to closed doors and turn around without some assault. They don't like to give up Satan's servants without a fight. Temptation, spiritual battles... They'll continue, but fear not, Christian. The castle is impregnable. It is secure. Take comfort. Second, take conviction. Your house cannot be divided. You are either Christ's or you are the devil's, one or the other. In your case, you are Christ's. But that doesn't mean that you, therefore, may lay back and sort of rest on your laurels, you know. As the conversation continues, we hear a woman's voice raised and 
over the sound of the crowd. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. A great Christmas text. And they were that womb and those breasts of Mary's. They were blessed. They were blessed indeed. And Jesus doesn't argue the point with her. I know it's not entirely clear in the English. It's difficult Greek to translate. But effectively, he agrees. He affirms what she says. But he takes it even further in reply. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You are Christ's house, Christian. That is who you are. And that fact should be evident from your life. In your convictions, in your actions, in your thoughts, in your behavior. You hear the word of God and you keep it. But where the word of God is not believed, where the word of God is not kept, there you find a person who, whatever he or she may claim about being a Christian, a follower of Christ, whatever, is not in fact with Christ, but against him. You may know the name Christopher Hitchens. He's one of the new breed of atheists, or rather was, until his death a few days ago. He made a splash in the world with books touting unbelief in God as the path to enlightenment. His bestseller was God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Last year... Hitchens was interviewed on the radio by a Unitarian minister by the name of Marilyn Sewell. She posed this question to Hitchens. The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, That Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Hitchens replied, quote, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven... You're really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. Well, good for Mr. Hitchens. He saw with perfect clarity what Ms. Sewell does not. For just a moment, Christopher Hitchens and Jesus agreed. You either take Jesus at his word... And do it. Or you're against him. You either have him for your Messiah, for your risen Savior and Lord, trust in and rest on him for the forgiveness of your sin, or you're against him. There's no neutral ground. Even Mr. Hitchens understood. 
understood it a lot better than many a churchman, than many, a, many of the clergy in our day or in Jesus' day. Alas, to the end, as far as we know, he clung, Mr. Hitchens did, to that consistency for himself. While he was struggling over the past few months with the esophageal cancer that claimed his life on Thursday, he made it perfectly clear through what has been called his pre-buttles that even if his voice survived to his deathbed, no one should believe any reports of a last-minute conversion on his part. Quote, as a terrified, half-aware imbecile, Hitchens anticipated, I might even scream for a priest at the close of business, though I hereby state while I'm still lucid that the entity thus humiliating itself would not, in fact, be me. Bear this in mind, he wrote, in case of any later rumors or fabrications, that is, of his conversion. He was, to use Jesus' terms, against Christ. And he wanted it to be clear, absolutely clear, while he was still in his mind, that regardless of what he might say under the influence of the throes of death, his house, the house of his heart, would remain firmly united to the end. Against Christ. His was a grievous choice. And now it is a choice that is sealed by death. But you, in the hearing of my voice right now, still have this moment, this moment, to turn to Christ. If you're not clear whether you are for Christ or against Christ today, then pray to him right now to save you, to take the ground of your heart, to drive from you any and every spirit but his own. Do not settle like that man did in Jesus' story for some spiffing up, you know, some moral reforms. Uh, however sincere they are, to make yourself a better person, you know, to straighten out your life, to be, to be good. Without Christ, you're only inviting more evil spirits back into your spick and span heart. No, you give your heart. You give the whole house of your heart, undivided, all of it, promptly, and sincerely to Christ, and he will gladly take it and keep it until the day of completion. Amen.